0: Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music based podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Mike Liedis, and after spending some 30 years in the music industry and working with some of the world's leading artists, I've finally been paroled, adopted by Pantheon, and sharing some amazing stories from some equally amazing people. Moments That Rock Is that moment where artists and music industry insiders share moments that rocked their world. Our special guest today is one Christian Swain, who was foolish enough to give me a job and employ me making podcasts. So why not have him in? Seriously, though, the reason we do have him on is he's been uh, an avid enthusiast of music. He has his own rock and roll archaeology. archaeology. Uh, But let me pass it over to Christian for a far better bio than my good self, Mr Swain. Thank
1: you very much, Tony. Uh, yeah, I am the CEO of Pantheon pa- Podcast, or officially Pantheon Media, but our focus is in the podcasting space. We've been uh, doing this for about eight years. Uh, we have a network of uh, music-related podcasts. That's our uh, expertise and w- how we uh, we come to the podcast space and <coughs> try to help um you know, podcast discovery. I mean, that, that was really the impetus of where some of this kind of started was uh, we created a show, as you mentioned, Rock and Roll Archaeology. Uh, yes, I'm sometimes known as the Rock and Roll Archaeologist. And uh, we wanted to tell a uh, a deep dive uh, into uh, the music, culture, and technology of the late 20th century. And how those three things impacted and created feedback loops with each other uh, and made probably um, one of the biggest, if not the biggest art movement uh, in the history of mankind. You know, if you think back on... um, uh, and I just was thinking about this the other day, uh, the Impressionists, uh, you know, uh, Van Gogh, uh, uh, Monet, Manet, um, Gauguin, uh, Degas. Uh, you know, there there was there was about uh, 20, 20 of these guys, maybe 30 of them. And, and this thing lasted for about a good 20, 30 years. Uh, I, I think the end of the impression, uh, the Impressionists uh, comes with the beginning of World War One uh, and. um Uh, You know, people still think back fondly uh, on that art movement. Uh, It was a big deal. It really changed art uh, quite dramatically. Uh, Up until that time, it was all about trying to, you know, um, get to photorealism, uh, if you will. And I'm not an art major. I'm sure there's art majors out there going, no, that's just the simplistic explanation. But yes, it's a simplistic explanation. But, you know, I think with the advent of photography, uh, artists, painters, uh, you know, began to say, well, geez, uh, there's photorealism for you right there. Uh, maybe we can look at the world differently and hence impressionistically. And uh, uh, that was a, a big, big moment. And I think that the rock and roll era, which is, you know, pretty Pretty much all the music of the late twentieth century, uh, and it'll just be called the rock and roll era. Uh, w- w- will hold um, the same um, uh, the same um, uh, lofty position as uh, the impressionists uh, enjoy uh, here now, a uh, hundred and so many so many years later you know archaeology is uh you know the study of the past and um you know through uh, its tools and its architecture and its works uh and um uh you know anybody that is interested and still interested in that period of time um you know you can kind of call an archaeologist i i think it's fair to say that uh you know that particular music and what i mean by that is um you Know, uh, four, three, four. I, I guess okay, we can start with two, two, three, four, five, uh, people self contained, uh, you know, simplistic instrumentation, uh, that is electrified, uh, and 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 they write their own songs. Um, You know, most famously it's the Beatles that, you know, are, are the, they're, they're the, 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 the prototypical uh, band, if you will, if you can do what they do, (laughs) which very few could, uh, you know, you could, um, you know, become uh, successful in, in an art, movement. Uh, And, uh, you know, at the same time, um, you know, uh, we're moving away from a Victorian uh, age uh, into something a little bit more emotional. And and I think that's a lot of what the late 20th century is about. And I think we see this in our art and it's the exploration of emotions and how those emotions, um, you know, interact and work uh, the pluses and the minuses. And, uh, you know, uh, music in a three minute uh, story could uh, could say a lot about those emotions Uh, You add uh, the music to enhance those uh, those lyrics, uh, you know, uh, backing up what you're saying uh, and uh, uh, or a juxtaposition, uh, which is also common, Um, you know, you you make impact. Uh, and I think more so than any other art form, it's, it's, it's kind of like smell. Uh, whereas, you know, if you, if you smell something that takes you back immediately, you, you are put back into that place. That first time you, you smelled that wonderful stew, if you will. And, uh, music is, is very similar. It, It immediately takes you back. Uh, so there's a huge nostalgic, uh, component to it. And, and, you know, let's face it, um, you know, for the first time in uh, human history over the last 100 and yeah, 150 years now, maybe a little bit longer, you know, we've been able to record, you know, ourselves in real time. Uh, and I think when we get to the 1950s or, you know, post-war, post-World War to, uh, the technology to create high fidelity recordings is really what sets the world on fire. Um, so from the technology standpoint, you know the these folks all showed up at the right time. Uh, you know one, one of my earliest questions was has always since I was young, how is it that the two greatest songwriters of the 20th century, both known as se- senior geniuses, uh, were born one mile apart from each other? that's what does that say about genius? uh, is it nature, nurture? Uh, I I think some of it is a a little, both of those things. I think with John and Paul specifically, the big thing about them was that their mothers died when they were teenagers. I think that created a bond between the two of them, uh, and they were able to tap into their emotions. And I, and I said that, that at the same time, the world started asking for that. Uh, They wanted an exploration in emotions. And, you know, uh, you know, you being a a Brit, uh, you know, stiff upper lip and buttoned up and all that was the expectation uh, until these times. And then it was, uh, no, let it all hang out. So, um, you know, we've gotten to see the the other side of things over the last uh, 70 years. I wasn't around uh when uh, you know Cole Porter was uh, writing his great tunes, you know, or or Oscar Wilde was on the scene. But those people are hugely important to me uh in in my 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 upbringing and my my interest in uh in music and and you know to make a direct correlation the only reason I picked up uh oscar wilde was because i knew the, that bowie was a huge fan of his uh and uh so i figured i would gain uh or glean some information about about uh about bowie uh through you know the readings of uh of the writings of oscar wilde uh and uh and there's there is some definite truth to that i mean you you can see parallels and he's also you know oh boy i, I don't want to make this whole thing about about bowie but because we could um but um uh first of all on the on the film itself i i really enjoyed the film and and i i think you almost kind of got to be a bit of a bowie file to enjoy the film because it's very impressionistic uh i called it uh, uh a cascading montage it's just just it's just uh there's no linearness to it. There's 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 a bit of a chronology to it. He, it starts with uh, Ziggy Stardust and it does hit the various iterations uh of uh of the characters that he created um you know from one to another uh as 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 he says you know as an art project uh that uh, you know these were acting roles uh that he considered because he was a bit insecure uh on stage and uh you know he could become somebody else um uh but um uh the other big takeaway for me which I think is really important is what an erudite well-read uh man uh he was um uh and I think that really comes through, Uh, In the lyrics, Um, you know, a a lot of what he wrote about, uh, granted, was isolation and they make a big deal about that being, um, you know, uh, an alien or or feeling not a part of the tribe, being an outsider uh, and things like that. Uh, Those are huge themes that he explored over and over again, but he was able to do it, um, you know, in just constantly evolving way and the other thing that comes across uh which i knew and it's really obvious in in this latest film is just how incredibly honest he always tried to be in any interview it was he really pays really close attention to what the interview is is asking And then he gives about the most honest answer he can even to the point of contradicting himself and willingly say, yeah, I I, I said that a few years ago and I was an idiot. And this is how I feel today. So, you know, to have a huge intellect like this. Uh, you know, and, and, and again, this is just some cat from Bromley, you know, uh, you know, the same thing with John and Paul, you know, they, they were, you know, scousers, uh, from Liverpool, uh, there's nothing special, uh, about them on paper. Uh, but yet all of them, you know, go on to, uh, grab this new, you know, uh, art form and really turn it into something you know, incredibly special. And I I think there's a handful of artists that will be remembered, you know, hundreds of years from now, you know, like Mozart and Bach and Brahms. And, you know, I think it's definitely the Beatles. uh, There's no doubt about that. Uh, They are definitely going to be on the top of that list. I think Dylan uh, will, will be on that list. I think Bowie will be on that list. I think there's a few others, but I think Bowie is probably the... The more the most interesting of everybody, especially when you consider that, you know, uh, the the drive that he went through to even get somewhere, uh, you know, the the 10 years in the wilderness of the 60s. Uh, you know, he starts his first band, I think, in 63 and uh, really doesn't, you know, he, you know, he has a a, a minor a novelty hit with space oddity in 69 but it's not until ziggy uh in um uh 71 72 that he becomes something big and by the way that's only in the uk he doesn't really become big in the united states until the mid 70s and yeah 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 the the uh the um uh his first uh uh Tour of America was a bit of a disaster. Uh the Ziggy thing was really coastal. Uh you know, I don't think America was ready for a gender bending uh, sexually ambivalent character um you know america doesn't really it, it you know takes us a long time to to get there i think the you know the first of all the I, i've always said that um the big difference between british rockers and american rockers is that american rockers always want to try to be authentic that's their thing they're trying to be you know real about it whereas the brits all know it's fucking show business and uh you know the you know it's a it's, it, it, it's it, there's no, no reason why you can't do both but it's show business and uh you know the more show the more business you get so uh uh so they kind of figured that out uh, pretty quickly uh and uh, were willing to to you know go to places that uh that maybe the americans uh, weren't um thank god for the british invasion uh uh for for a variety of reasons as you know i love all music all kinds everywhere uh and i love exploring music from all over the world uh and i can always find something good about it uh but uh, if push came to shove you, you know my record collection leans towards uh, the uh, the British Isles uh, more so than, uh, than uh, the American side of things. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. I think other than the Beatles, uh, Bowie is the most influential artist, uh, of the rock and roll age. Uh, you know, and in fact, um, uh, shameless plug here, uh, as you know, we're doing some work with Nick Mason's Full of Secrets tour. And, uh, and so two of his guys, Guy Pratt and Gary Kemp, uh, come from OMD and Spandau Ballet of the eighties, which is the new romantic period. And and that is a direct correlation to Bowie. There's, there's no new romantics of the UK in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, eh, 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 without Bowie. I, I, he, he sets the, sets the, the, the table and, uh, you know, a lot of these bands uh, pick it up uh, from there. I've done a little bit of research. It's going to be an upcoming rock and roll archaeology um, uh, episode about that glam period. Because number one, it doesn't last very long. Uh, It's like maybe two years, maybe three at the max. Uh, It's very small uh there's only a handful of of bands that are officially in that uh that glam period of the early 70s in the uk and it's also only uk Uh, i guess you could throw the new york dolls uh in there uh as well uh they they attempted to do their little gender bending thing but weirdly where america goes with glam rock is kiss that's their idea of glam rock which is fire, blood, and violence. Unfortunately, uh, it didn't translate to America, uh, the glam period, the, or the early glam period. And then when it does return, as if you want to call it that glam rock, which some people refer to hair metal of the 80s out of LA, um, again, uh, sure, the boys dressed up like girls, put on some lipstick and makeup, you know, teased out their hair or their spandex, but it was still very heterosexual. There was no homosexuality to that whatsoever uh, from their perspective and the lyrics and the presentation, uh, if you will. Um, So, yeah, the, the issue was that now I think it's also fair to, to mention that uh, as we know, uh, Bowie wasn't, Never really a homosexual, even though he claimed he was uh, in an interview with Rolling Stone. He was all about shock uh, effect and that he. You know pulled this together as an acting job as a character that was created ziggy stardust is an invention um not unlike alice cooper uh the difference though is that uh when ziggy started to eat his uh mentor his author uh that author said enough of this i'm moving on uh, alice had to go through um
0: you know uh, rehab and um you know alcohol detox too to. excellent stuff from christian swain our historian music archaeologist um and don't forget to listen to his uh rock and roll archaeology podcast on pantheon podcast really good stuff and uh, very interesting stuff right across the board in fact and um yeah we'll be back with christian's moments uh, this time he shared like yeah impressionist sexuality uh people who are going to leave an impression themselves like bowie but let's not go there i was just talking about bowie like he said all night We'll be back with Mr. Paul Natkin and part two of his moments. I told you that. Paul Natkin. He's got a brilliant book called The Moment of Truth, which is a photographic history of his career. He started in 1976. You can hear the previous uh, stuff he talks about um, if you scrolled through and listened to a previous podcast of uh, Moments That Rock. Uh, today, we're going to hear him talk about a whole bunch of rock bands and then, to finish it off, his time with a slightly popular band called Rolling Stones. But first of all, he talks about Alice Cooper, Guns N' Roses, and a few more. This is Paul Atkin.
3: So, I um, I had a friend who's a publicist for Geffen Records and I was set up to do a photo shoot with Alice Cooper once. I was going to shoot him after his show, you know, post-portraits. And she called me up and she said, listen, I heard you're gonna be shooting Alice Cooper. Uh, I've got the band that's opening the show for them. And uh, you've never heard of them, but they're gonna be really big. And the one thing I've learned in this business, and don't take this the wrong way, but every publicist will tell you that every band they work with is gonna be really big. I didn't didn't wanna set up my equipment twice and do two separate shoots. So I said, well, I don't know who these guys are, but if they'll wait around until after Alice's show, I could throw them in there for a couple pictures before he walks in the room. And she said, okay, I'll tell them to wait around. You should look them up before you go to the show. The name of the band is Guns N' Roses. I didn't even shoot them when they played, you know, on stage. I I didn't even go out in the hall. I was just backstage setting up my stuff for my after-show photo shoot. And uh, so... Alice finished Finishes set. The house lights came up. I went back to my little room with my backdrop. And these guys started walking in one at a time. Slash walks in and Axel walks in and Izzy. And I did individual shots of each one of them. And I had no faith whatsoever that they would become famous. So I just took about three pictures of each guy just to satisfy the publicist. And then when they were all in the room, I said, okay, all you guys get in front of the background. And I shot four pictures. And I've sold those pictures like 400 times already. And, and I, I started getting access to them every time they came to town. And I you know, would take pictures of them and they got to be friends with their manager. And then in 1990, uh, they played at a, an event called Farm Aid, which is Willie Nelson's charity. And I was the official Farm Aid photographer. So, Farm Aid in 1990 was in Indianapolis and Guns N' Roses was on the show. And right before they went on stage, their manager came up to me and said, Listen, we're not going to let anybody shoot pictures of the band today because they were, because Axel was dre- was wearing a cowboy hat. And I thought that that was not appropriate for their image. So, he said to me, Do me a favor, don't shoot Guns N' Roses. And if you do that, I'll make sure that you get access to them forever. So I said, okay, no problem. So I ended up standing at the side of the stage watching them play. All the other photographers completely disobeyed rules and they just walked out into the crowd and walked up to the front and shot their whole set. I was the only one that didn't shoot. And then I've never been able to shoot them since. Their, their manager, like, never, never got back to me, never allowed me to shoot him since. Except for at the end of the, well, this was the year before, but it was kind of like the same era. Uh, at the end of the Steel Wheels tour, they did a pay-per-view, the Stones of a pay-per-view in Atlantic City. And they invited Axel and Izzy to sing, to do Salt of the Earth with them. And uh, so I shot him there. And I got to be friends with with Izzy, who's a really nice guy, great guitar player. Uh, We were standing in the lounge after soundcheck, and I was standing talking to Izzy in the corner, and we looked up, and Eric Clapton was playing pool by himself. And Izzy looks at me, and he says, Oh, man, I would give anything to meet Clapton. And I said... Dude, you're Izzy Stradlin. You're from Guns N' Roses. Just go up and introduce yourself. And he says, he said, I can't do that. And I just, I I didn't even know Clapton. I had met him like once. And he had no idea who I was. I was just some guy with a camera hanging around. And I just grabbed Izzy by the arm and dragged him over and said, Eric, I want you to meet Izzy Stradlin. Uh, You should play pool with him for a while. And, uh, and Izzy, every time I see him, he, he tells me about that moment where I introduced him to Eric Clapton and how great it was. And uh, a couple years later, he came to Chicago to rehearse, to shoot a video and rehearse for his tour for a solo album. And he hired me to spend five days with him, just hanging out with him and doing, doing photos during their rehearsals and their video shoot. It's full, few and far between, but when it happens, it's a great thing all these stories that I have kind of go back to the stones at some point or another, but they don't really mean they're not about the stones. Uh, the next one I got is uh, there's a guy named Chuck LaBelle, who's the keyboard player for the Stones. So we're, we're on the plane every night flying from city to city. And Chuck, Chuck used to be in the Allman brothers back in the days from Georgia. And he, uh, one day we're sitting on the plane, it's middle of the night and he says, you know, I just, played on an album with a band from Georgia called the Black Crows. And you should check them out. They're going to they're, they're be really big. So I got home at the end of the tour. And a month later, I saw an ad in the paper for a Black Crows show. So I called their publicist and set up a photo shoot. And I have a friend who I describe him as the world's largest human being. Uh, he played for the Chicago Bears in 1985 when they won the Super Bowl. And he's six foot seven and about 325 pounds. And he's a huge music fan. So I arranged for a photo shoot with the Black Crows and I called my friend Keith. And I said, hey, you know, would you should come with me for this because this band is really good. You're gonna like them. So he came to my house and I put all my stuff in his car. We went to the show, went in at Soundcheck, and. We walk in the dressing room and the Black Crows are sitting there, and they're five little, tiny, skinny guys. And this guy who's six foot seven and three twenty five walks in, and I've been—we both been friends with the friends with the Black Crows ever since. And every time they come to town, both Keith and I go to the show. And at some point during the night, somebody from the band will say, "Man, do you remember when you got? You couldn't believe this guy comes in to take photographs of us and." He's got the world's biggest assistant with them. I've been friends with those guys ever since, and we'll be friends with them forever. And I, if I'm working with a band, I always tell them, uh, "You have to allow me to go anywhere I need to go to get the picture. And if it means getting on the stage for a couple minutes, I'm going to do it. But I don't spend any. I don't spend a lot of time up there. Sometimes they actually interact with me, and it's great. It's great. But I, I also feel like. The a perfect example is Gene Simmons from Kiss. The reason they don't like people taking pictures of them anymore is because he gets distracted because he spent so much time posing for the cameras <laughs> that he forgets to sing. He walks up and down the row of photographers and sticks his tongue out for every one of them, at least a couple times every show. If they interact with me, Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick is really good at throwing guitar picks into the audience, flicking them into the audience, and he would stand there and try to flick them into my camera lens. And every once in a while, he would do it. When they interact, it's, it's, that's, those are the greatest pictures. They were always going to put on a show. And, they were, and they were, they're great guys. So when I'm shooting a band that I like, where I'm friends with them, it's definitely, you know, all things go. Whatever needs to be done gets done. If I went to a concert and shot 10 rolls of film, nine rolls would be black and white, one roll would be color. And the only reason I shot the roll of color is that there were magazines that wanted color pictures. But I would rather have shot black and white of everything. I, I like the Rolling Stones, obviously. I've done three tours with them. I'm particularly fond of Keith. Uh, I was really fond of Charlie Watts. He was a, he was a great guy. Uh, I've, I'll photograph Springsteen anytime he plays anywhere. I photographed Prince like 30 times. I also love hanging around with Ozzy Osbourne. I took mostly by accident, I have to say, the most famous picture of Ozzy Osbourne ever taken. And it was in 1982. Uh, He was, his guitar player was this little kid named Randy Rhodes. I was shooting Randy, I was taking pictures of Randy and Ozzy walked up behind him and picked him up in the air. And I took a picture just out of reflex, you know, like, hey, this is happening. Grabbed the camera, took a picture. Uh, Randy died a month later. And people have told me, I don't believe this, but people have told me that that picture is the most famous heavy metal picture ever taken. It's appeared on, without exaggeration, 50 magazine covers, at least five or six book covers. It was an album cover. It was I'm looking right now at my wall in my living room. I don't have as much stuff on my walls as you do. I've got a snowboard on the wall, Ozzy and Randy on it, that I that I sold to the snowboard company. I'll go and shoot him any, time, any opportunity I have. You know, and he's a really funny guy and he's fun to hang around with.
0: A gent we had on the podcast a while back, his name is Paul Atkin. His book is called The Moment of Truth. And it's basically photographs, talking about photographs uh, throughout his career. And he's talking to us. So you heard a bunch of things there. The Black Crows, uh, Farm Aid, Guns N' Roses, Alice Cooper. And now we're going to hear Paul talk about his time with the Rolling Stones. In
3: 1989, I became the tour photographer for the Rolling Stones. And the first day of the tour that I shot, I realized that Charlie Watts was like, it was like 100 miles away from me. I'm in front of the stage. The stage is the size of most arenas. And what am I gonna do? I gotta get pictures of Charlie. And on top of which, he had a plexiglass shield on either side of him for sound barriers. So the only way to shoot him was from straight ahead. But you got the drums in the way, you got the cymbals in the way, you got the cymbal stands in the way. So we get on the plane that night to go to the next city And Charlie motions me over, and I didn't even know him at the time. I would met him like four hours earlier. Turns out he's probably the nicest guy I ever met in the history of the music business. And he says, well, have you figured out how you're going to get pictures of me? And I said, it's probably going to take me a couple days to figure this out. And he said, well, there's a really easy way. At some point during the show, just come around to the back of the stage, walk up on stage, and just walk right in front of me. And stand there and take pictures. And it's the freaking Rolling Stones. There's 60,000 people in the audience in a football stadium. Am I going to walk right out on stage? But I did it. And he's posing for me. And then I turned around. And I looked out. And I was standing on stage. Mick Jagger was standing on one side of me. Keith Richards was standing on the other side of me. And there were 60,000 people in the audience looking at us. It was so intimidating that I only did it a couple more times, but I always made sure to get, you know, you have to get pictures of one of the members of the band of every member of the band. And that's the only way you could do it. But other than that, I mean, I climbed everywhere on that stage. I went up three stories up on the scaffolding and shot from up above. The only other time that being on stage was great is that one day, I went on stage and I took a picture of them taking a bow from behind them. They all had their hands in the air. They had their arms around each other's shoulders and the audience is all lit up because they liked the audience at that point. And uh, no other photographer on the tour had thought to do that. And after the tour, they put out a book of photographs and that picture was the back cover of the book because it was a perfect ending to a book. It was them from behind looking out, and the audience all looking at them. But other than that, I tried not to get on stage. I want to be friends with Keith for the next 50 years. I want to be invited over to his house to hang out in his swimming pool in his backyard, which is like the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. They are the greatest rock and roll band on the planet for a reason. At every every press conference they hold, somebody asks Keith how, how much longer they're going to do it. And he said, he always says the same thing. He says... What am I going to do? Am I going to stay home and like watch TV? He says, This is what I do. This is what I know how to do. And he always, he always describes Muddy Waters playing until the day before he died. And John Lee Hooker playing when he couldn't even stand up anymore. He's going to live forever. He can still kick his leg up and kick his foot up in the air over his head while he's playing the guitar. It's not as difficult being on the road as it might seem. Because you're staying in five-star hotels, you are got people catering to you every minute of the day and night, you get to sleep all day, you just have to get up on time on time to get in a van and go to soundcheck, and, uh, and then you play in front of 70,000 people who all love you.
0: Is there anybody you wished you'd have photographed that you didn't get the chance? Don't say um, Mozart.
3: Uh, I probably would have liked to have photographed him but that was a little bit before my time but I started in 75 and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin had both died by that point maybe they didn't die that early but I wasn't shooting at that point Uh, I would have liked to have photographed both of them I never photographed the Beatles I photographed Ringo when he, he did those solo tours But never photographed anybody else from the Beatles. Other than that, I photographed 4,400 artists. Pretty much everybody.
0: 4,400 artists. That's incredible. I've seen a few of those pics myself, and they're absolutely amazing. So thanks again, Paul Natkin. And, of course, to Christine Swain. And uh, as I mentioned before, Christine has his own uh, rock and roll archaeology program on here which is of course uh the thing that started it all pantheon podcast and there's plenty of good stuff on here so you've been listening to me tony mike lindis with moments that rock we will be back with plenty more just lining them up now thanks for listening subscribe write reviews do everything that makes me popular (laughs) Bye bye